the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 85, and our guest is Casey Anderson. Casey is an outstanding singer and songwriter from Portland, Oregon, who has been a great friend to the show. His latest records are Let the Bloody Moon Rise, which is an old record that has been re-released in the way that Casey originally envisioned in a live recording from a similar period called Wednesday Night Round 9. Both are outstanding and both are available at CaseyAndersonMusic.com and all of your streaming outlets. Everyone, this was so much fun. It is a huge pleasure to present for the second time on The Marinade, Casey Anderson. It ain't yours, better leave it where you found it You got to move You got to move How's it going? Man, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I, um, I've had one of these days where, like, um, and I'm a fairly emotional person right like i i uh i cry when i need to cry and i you know get i i i uh express my anger healthily when i need to express my anger healthily or whatever but some days you know those days when you're just like feeling everything a little bit more intensely i'm, mm-hmm. having, I'm having one of those days like it's a good day i i, I everything is great but I'm just having one of those days where everything just feels much more intense than it has of late. And I don't know what that is. It's just been really interesting to go about my day today. And just like, as I was preparing for this, your songs, like, and I can't wait to get into the music, but like listening to your, your new, new record, right. To the places we've lived. Um, like those songs were hitting me in a different way today. Yeah. Interactions that I had with people are hitting me differently. Anyway, that's just kind of how, where my like mindset is now. Those days are hard. I feel like those days are more frequent now that we're like, everybody is kind of just still locked up with their thoughts. Mm. They're, you know, like it's, I, uh, I think that there is, I don't know. I mean, there's everybody needs an emotional outlet. I think for a lot of people, it's like, I'm not an especially 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I, I don't mind being alone. I don't mind being isolated. I don't mind mm -hmm. having a lot of time to myself. Um, but I can see like, even now, like we're in Portland and it's 80 degrees today and people are out and you can see that they're out in a way like they have not been out, you know, like they did not get to go out last summer. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see that release and people I think are just handling it differently. And I think then there's those of us who are still being really careful and are still inside. Not that those people aren't being careful or whatever, sure. but um, you know, like we're still inside and we're still kind of like just trying to work our way psychologically and emotionally through what the last year and a half has been. And I think that that does that, that like heightens, you start to think about your interactions with people and you start to think about the things that are important to you and that kind of heightens everything. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, I, I watched your interview with um, your conversation with uh, Jason Isbell. Great job, by the way, with your Alana Club. Um, oh, thanks. It's like, you're like, you just did a fantastic job in that conversation. I loved it. And um, y'all were talking about something that I think it pertains to what you just said. And that is the idea of like, it's not always when you're in the moment. In fact, a lot of times it's not when you're in the moment that the thing hits you. Uh, it's the, the difficult moment, I should say. A lot of times it's it's later that that hits you and how you process it later can then come out, you know, in a, in, a, in a negative way if you're not aware of that. And I think that's what a lot of folks right now, it seems like, I think that for me, I'm, I'm trying to be hyper aware of how am I processing this last year, even though I've been super lucky, like everything's mm -hmm. been pretty good for me, honestly, as far as, you know, I've, I've had it way better than most folks, but how I'm processing, like re-entering the atmosphere, you know, slowly re-entering the atmosphere is going to be super important for making sure that I, pro that I handle it properly, you know? Yeah. Um, let's talk, let's, so it's been, I was looking back at it. We last talked in 2018. Like, it's so crazy to me to think yeah. about it. Right. It's so wild to think how much has changed and how much has happened in, in your life and my life and the world. Um, so I, let's start with like, are you retiring? Are you not retiring? I mean, um, I am gradually. Yeah. The and I I thought I would be at a more accelerated pace, but then the dangerous ones thing happened. Yeah. Um, which was cool and it was totally unexpected and it was you know like a nice little, I guess blessing. Um, and it it just put me in a position where I was like, oh, okay, well, I, now I can do this at my own pace and in my own way. And maybe, you know, like there are more people who are listening to my records and the dangerous ones allowed me to do some things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do in terms of like merch and, and getting some records pressed. Um, and so I thought like, okay, well, I probably won't put this new record out until it's safe to tour because I want to do some shows behind it. You know, mm -hmm. even if it's not like a, an extensive tour, I want to be able to do some shows. So like, why not, you know, the Let the Bloody Moon Rise record had never really come out mm -hmm. properly, officially, the way that I wanted it to. And I was like, well, why not do that in the meantime? Because this is a record that I probably wouldn't tour behind anyway, right? Like the band is all really scattered now. We're all in different mm -hmm. places than we were when we made it. Um, so... I, it still is, you know, I, the, the record, the, to the places we lived record is going to be the last thing that I do, at least as Casey Anderson in the way that I've been doing it, mm. you know, for the past 20 years. Um, I, I'm sure that I will not stop writing songs. I'm sure that I will not mm -hmm. probably stop like wanting to be in bands and record music and play music, but it's the last 
it's it's sort of the end of a public conversation that has been going on with the folks who listen to my music. Mm. You know, Nowhere Nights was really the record that that I think brought a lot of people into any sort of understanding of who I was as an artist or any sort of appreciation for like that's you know if, if I have to, to the extent that I have fans most of them are familiar with that record um because it, like Teenage Gravity is on there the Counting Crows covered that song and so mm-hmm. I think it took a lot of people back to that record and so I thought well Nowhere Nights is a lot of open-ended conversations um and I, I want to try and bring those to a close with the places we lived and then you know then I can sort of move forward from there in whatever way I want but that that this this and you've heard some of the song you know you've heard all the songs mm-hmm. from it in in one form or another and, and I I think it sounds like an end point you know like mm-hmm. it sounds like a pretty logical end point it does I I wonder something you just said just about thinking about like let the bloody moon rise for example and the idea of like the practicality of touring behind that isn't really there like what we've rethought so many things in the last year. I mean, in, in the way that we operate as creatives, um, as people, but especially I think as creatives, everyone's had to innovate and rethink the way that it works, right? And so I, I wonder if there's like, what like when you talk about touring behind to the places we've lived, is there a place is there a space for just like you're just putting out records and you're not touring behind them i mean i know that the model is you put out the record and you tour but is there yeah. a space for that there is i think um and i i do think that the last year and a half have caused a lot of artists to reconsider what touring looks like to them i mean i you know i have a, like bj a lot of my friends work 200 250 days a year on the road with their bands and um i mean i can't speak for bj but i know for a lot of other artists this time being at home with their families has caused them to think like oh maybe i don't have to do 250 dates a year you know maybe i can scale that back and and if live music is as important to people as they say it has been for the last year then people can travel the extra 25 miles to a different market if i don't hit the, you know, the place that's right in their backyard. Um, and so for me, I think that that is, you know, you just hit on something that I have actually been unable to articulate and was unable to articulate when I talked to you just a second ago about it. And that is that retirement to me doesn't mean I'm never going to do this again. Right. It means I'm not going to do it the way that I have understood it has to be done in order to be a musician, right? Like to the, for this, Let the Bloody Moon Rise, there's a very small camp press campaign and it's mostly like me and my manager doing it. Mm-hmm. For To the Places We Lived, there'll be probably a bigger press push behind it and there'll be some tour dates behind it and I'll, I'll work the record in a very traditional way. And then from there on, you know, there are avenues like Bandcamp and there are streaming shows have become such a thing that there's no reason for me to think that they will go away. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like people will get back out on the yep. road and play live gigs, but also they'll still do Instagram lives and they'll still understand that there are ways to reach their audience that maybe we didn't consider before. Um, and so for me, retirement probably just means like doing this in a way that's not traditional and isn't especially set up to like keep the machine moving forward. You know, right. like I was just texting with Andrew McKaig who, who played guitar on the Let the Bloody Moon Rise record and also a lot onto the places we lived. Um, and said, you know, like, I still would love to do a full UMI covers record. We have had this idea to do a record, uh, covers record of 
Northwest rock and roll with Kurt Bach, you know, everything that sort of traces from the Sonics to Dead Moon and the Wipers to, you know, all, all these bands that sort of influenced us when we were growing up or, you know, throughout the years. Um, and those are things that I can still do. And I can, I still love to be in the studio. You know, I love to, to write and arrange music, but I don't have to do them in such a way that takes away from my family or, you know, my job, which I now love very much. Um, I could do them in a way that still continues a conversation with my audience, but moves it in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think also, you know, to that point about the streaming stuff, like I, I have enjoyed these streaming shows more than I realized I would. And I think at first I was kind of hesitant. I was like, I get it. You got to do it right. Right now mm -hmm. you can't go out on tour, but I've really enjoyed, it. I've really gotten into it. And, and of course, everyone has gotten better at the production of it and, you know, had, done, had become more comfortable with it. Same thing with podcasting. Like I was so resistant to phoners. I was so resistant to, I don't know why, again, like I've said this a few times on the show, why we didn't do Zoom calls before for these things. Like I yep. just did phoners all the time. And now it's like, well, now I, I, I'm, it's opened these horizons for me. I mean, now I feel like let's reach out to whoever, even if they're not coming into town. I don't think there is a substitute for being there in the room with the person having a conversation or, you know, obviously there's no substitute for being at a live show, but there's so much value in, in this, you know, yeah. like there's so much value in this. I mean, you and I never get in the same town, you know? Yeah. So like, yeah. um, but without this, if, if it's on the phone, we can still do it. And we did it before, but it's not the same as, as being to see your face. It's not the same. And, and I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I, I watched the Amanda Shire's live stream things, mm -hmm. you know, when she was doing those and I thought they were really cool. And then I went through a period where I was like, man, this is a bummer. It actually just makes me miss seeing my friends or you know, bands I like live. And then I kind of swung back the other way. And mm -hmm. part of that is because of the Artists in Recovery interview series. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, you know, the last one that we did in person was with Raphael Sadiq when he came through Portland in February of 2020. Mm -hmm. And previously, wow. I would have to try and arrange that interview series around you know, if, if somebody was coming through town, I would have to reach out and say, like, does Raphael have 45 minutes before the gig? Or like, yeah, I noticed that he has a day off before the gig. Does he want to come into Portland? Um, but it's not, it's, it's not that way anymore. I mean, I can just send somebody's management an email and say, you know, hey, does Jason have this day open? If he doesn't, does he have a different day open? Let's do it. We can hop on via Zoom and, you know, it's 45 minutes of his time and he doesn't have to rearrange his whole tour itinerary to make it happen um and that's been cool you know that's been cool and that's a thing that i think even when we, we start being able to do them live again that's a thing that i think i will continue to do because it also allows them to i mean for you the you know the podcast live it lived somewhere still right like you got to have the in-person conversation and then the folks who listen to the podcast got to hear the podcast with the artisan recovery series like we didn't record them we didn't do video but now that we can do mm. via zoom i just record them and so then i can put it on youtube and vimeo and and people who missed it the first time around can get back to it yeah and that's what that's what i did right that's what i did with the isbel when i didn't get a chance to see it at the time and then i i went back and watched it and um, I, so I'm curious about the artists in recovery series and how it came about. And then I'm also curious about like, again, Casey, you did a great job with that conversation. And I'm wondering how much preparation you put into it, how much work goes into the, the, the planning for those conversations. 
first of all, thank you. I, I really love that program. Um, it came about, well, so when I came on at the Alano Club, I, my first job at the Alano Club was I just picked up people from treatment centers and took them to uh, the recovery gym, which is a gym here in Portland that does free CrossFit training for people in recovery. Um, so I would, I just drove a van and I would drive them to the treatment center or pick them up from the treatment center, take them to the gym, hang for a while, and then take it back to the treatment center. And it was just something that I did because I love the Alano club. And I, I had a really close friendship with Brent Cano, the executive director there. And, you know, I just reached out to him and said, how can I help? And he was like, you can do this two days a week if you have the time. And I was like, dope. I have the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, you know, once I, got my foot in the door I started he had this artisan recovery series that was mostly just local people in recovery playing 45 minute shows once a month mm-hmm. um and I was like man I, I think you can do this differently you know I think that you can turn these into conversations with maybe some of my friends or with me or with you know artists who I can reach out to and I'm happy to help out and you know, I, as great as it is for people in recovery to see an artist they admire perform, like it's even better or more beneficial to me. Um, and there's evidence that supports this, that the people in recovery need to hear those stories told mm. by the people who live them and need to hear, you know, like it, it means a lot to hear for somebody to hear Jason Isbell say he struggled with isolation during the pandemic. It mm. means a lot for, for somebody in recovery to hear Raphael Sadiq speak from the perspective of a family member of someone with substance use disorders and how that affects families. Um, and so I, I took over that program and then I developed um, on my own a, a cooking program with local chefs in town, Gregory Gorday and Gabriel Rucker and Gina Helvey and a bunch of others um, teaching cooking classes. And then the next thing I knew, Brent was like, well, this is like, you have a lot of good ideas. Let's, <laughs> let's bring you on. And I, I took the, the gig full time um, and it's been really rewarding. It's been a really cool couple of years. Um, in terms of the prep, I mean, for the Isbel thing, Jason and I have been friends for a long time, so that was easy, and we've had a lot of those conversations, you know, candidly and, and off record, so that was, you know, that, that really was, and I think we both said it at some point during the interview, like, that was just, like, us texting or talking to each other on a normal yep. day. Anyway, um, for the other ones, you know, I do... I start to do prep when I, you know, I usually book them a month or so out in advance and I start to do prep and really think about what the artist's story is and, and what I think would be beneficial for the community to hear. Um, you know, the, the Morgan Wade one isn't up on YouTube or Vimeo yet, but it will be pretty soon. Cool. Um, and, and Morgan talked a lot about still having those thoughts about wanting to pick up a drink or you know wanting thinking like oh it's okay for me to drink and then and how she deals with those and I think that's a that's a really cool thing to address too and and uh both you know and you know Jason for sure I wanted to touch on his song about how it gets easier but it never gets easy I mean I think that that is a that's some ground that it's very rarely covered in art that addresses recovery and substance use disorders so um I, I do a fair amount of research and I also think because I come from that same background, it makes those conversations easier, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and Sadiq said, pointed that out the other night that, you know, I'm speaking as someone in recovery, but I'm also speaking as someone who makes records and who writes songs and, and who mm-hmm. makes things. So I'm able to tap into to both parts of that conversation. And I think that has helped make those conversations feel really natural and, and be really beneficial for the community who watches them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking, I was reflecting on on something similar earlier, not not necessarily recovery related, but just creativity related about 
how in the last, since I started the show, really, I started taking songwriting seriously as a hobby. And, um, and it's led to the point where now I have enough of my own originals that I want to make a record. And cool. yeah, and it, it's really cool. But it's also like, it's one of the the unintended consequences is it's made me realize how much fucking work goes into making a record and like how many moving parts there are. And I guess I knew that, right? I could, I intellectually was aware of the fact that, that it was a big production, but I think especially as I was approaching this conversation with you, I was just thinking like, man, you're somebody like Casey who um, people like me absolutely love your work and there's a part of us as a fan that might feel like, damn it, Casey, don't retire. Like, we want to hear more records. Like, I want to hear yeah. more of your music, you know, but you you don't owe us anything. But it's still we, you know, we selfishly want to hear more of the thing that you do. And then as I was really reflecting on, you know, preparing for this conversation, I was like, man, if I work full time and I don't have a child, but I do have a partner and dogs and other responsibilities, like if you're doing all of those things and trying to put together something that is as as involved as a record like that is a lot <laughs> there's a lot there and it's it kind of informed that you know it's informed my conversations more as i've written more songs and and i've tried to like make sense out of that magic that is writing a song and how hard it is to write one and then to write you know an album's full and then to make a career out of it um it doing the work that particular work and being kind of inside in some way um, has helped me understand just how involved making a record is yeah yeah that makes sense um and i will say that um you know like having to be practical about finances played a big role in my decision too you know like i i had to sit down and think okay if I want to just be a musician, if I want to get back to the place that I was in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, where I could make a living as a musician, mm -hmm. um, I have to consider that in 2010, 2011, 2012, I was single and had, mm -hmm. you know, an apartment that was fit for a, a single person to live in and had a schedule that was engineered so that I could leave whenever I wanted to and stay gone for as long as I wanted to stay gone. And I write, you know, now I have a partner and we have a five month old baby. And um, so I had to really sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to have to work this much every year. And I'm probably going to have to pick up some session work on the side. And maybe I'm going to have to go back to like trying to be a freelance music writer who covers a record or does an interview with people every once in a while. And I'm going to have to do all these things or I can take this job that's been offered to me at a place that I love at a place that has been really important to my recovery mm -hmm. and know what my schedule is going to be. And then I can kind of set my own terms with music stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and and mm -hmm. I can get out of the idea of having to work a certain record cycle, having to play this many gigs, mm -hmm. having to hit these markets. And I can do, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to play Americana Fest this year and I'm going to do a New York gig and a Chicago gig and a Portland gig and a Seattle gig and a couple of California things. And that's going to be it for me for the year. And if mm -hmm. folks don't like that, then I'm sorry. But, but like you said, like not, and not to be, you know, cantankerous about it, but I, I don't owe anybody anything mm -mm. Yeah. right now, you know, like the, the work that I want to do is, is, is done because I want to do it. Um, and so maybe it does look like, like, Hey, I have, I wrote three songs. I have a weekend where I can get into the studio with some folks, cut those three songs. And then once they're cut, I'll figure out what to do with them. 
Do mm -hmm. I want to do three singles that are only released digitally? Do I want to do two singles that wind up as a seven inch? Do I want to set them aside and, and see if somewhere down the road, I have six other songs and make a record and then put it out and figure out what that looks like. Like that's what retirement is to me. It's just releasing myself from this idea that I have to be on a certain schedule of making, releasing, promoting, touring, then back into the grind. Um, and I don't, I mean, you know, like I am not and will not ever be Jason Isbell or whoever, like there's, you know, there are a certain number of those artists that come along who reach that level of success. And there are, there are very good reasons why Jason, you know, like Jason is yeah. the best at what he does and he is rightly recognized as being the best at what he does. Um, and I had, you know, like I'm 41, I had to be honest mm -hmm. with myself and say like, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get to the point where I not, I can make music and dictate my own terms you know, like it's, it has to be one or the other. I can either mm -hmm. dictate the, the own terms of my life and when I go on tour. And if I do that, then I have to accept that I'm not going to be a full-time musician or I can bust my ass and try and be a full-time musician. And that means I'm not there for my wife and kid as much as mm -hmm. I want to be. Wow. That's, that's a lot, Casey. Thanks for sharing all that. I, I wonder if there is, you know, putting Jason aside because again like like you said he's the best at what he does like I feel like he is just he's in a different he's in a different level he's on a different level than anybody else that's ever done it in my mind like I he's the greatest in my mind uh, when, but but you're damn good at this too and so when do you think that do you think that like having this approach because what I heard in, in everything you just said was a lot of like dictating your own terms right or, or doing things on your own terms and i wonder if that will inform the songwriting in some way that like it, if that will lead to and has led to and so far from what i've heard from the new record i think it's true like will that lead to better work the fact that you kind of have this i don't know like you're doing things on your terms yeah i mean i think so and i and without like tooting my own horn too much. I mean, you have heard the newest record. And even when I like, we're in the process of finishing it still, which means I'm listening to it all the time, right? Like I'm listening to rough mixes and I'm trying to figure out if, the, if all the arrangement stuff is done the way I want it to be done. And then we'll get into mixing, which means I'm listening to the songs a million times each. Um, mm -hmm. But I am listening to it and I just am like, man, this is really good. This it is a is, yeah. really, really good record top to bottom. Um, and And I think that was informed by the idea that like okay this is the last thing you know maybe the last thing that i'm going to do that's this that's public facing to this degree right. or that i'm going to invest this much time and energy and promoting and touring behind and and making um and i think that shows and it was really freeing to go into it with that idea and to do things like oh i'm going to write a song that's based on one of hanif's poems and i'm going to ask matthew ryan to sing it with me um, because I'm not on any type of schedule, you know, like this is going to come out when it's going to come out. And the, and the pandemic really changed that too. You know, like I was like, okay, this record doesn't need to come out. You know, a lot of my friends had records that came out right when stuff was starting to close. Yeah. And I felt like my heart just broke for them. You yeah. know, like Jamie Wyatt's record is brilliant. And it yep. came out right when venues were starting to close. Like Shires' record is brilliant. And it came out right when venues were starting mm -hmm. to close. Um, Audie Victoria's record is brilliant. And, and she had a tour going when, when things were starting to close. BJ. Um, BJ, yeah. I mean, BJ always has shows booked. So missing a year and a half of work for him is huge. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, 
have that obligation. And so I got to sort of take the songs apart and go back and, and because people were all isolated and mm-hmm. every creative person had to immediately become a home recording expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to, I'll reach out to Sadler and see if he wants to play some guitar. I'll reach out to Davey mm-hmm. Lane and see if he wants to play some guitar. I'll see if, you know, whoever, my folks, my friends in, in other cities who would not have been able to come to a session or we would have had to really work to coordinate schedules to get them into a session or get me out there, that those boundaries were broken. And I started to just send songs around and ask people to play on them. Um, and, it, you know, I think the record really benefited from that approach. And it's not an approach I would have taken if I felt the pressure to like, okay, we have to get this out and I have to promote it somehow because in two years there needs to be another one. Yeah. That's great, man. I, I think it's one. I think it's wonderful, and I, I'm happy for you. I I wonder uh, about those songs. Like, they see if I if I remember correctly, I either read or heard you say that the those this batch of songs on to the place we lived came out kind of came right after the Hawks and Doves record. Is that is that accurate? And like, what did that look like in terms of your process at the time? Um, well, we finished the Hawks and Doves record and then released it. And um, I did the little solo tour behind it, which kind of coincided with my honeymoon. Um, Mm -hmm. And I started to like, I had the bug. I was like, okay, I can do this again. You know, like I, some of those Hawks and Doves songs I wrote while I was locked up, but others I wrote really specifically after I was released and I I wrote them to try and connect the dots between the songs I had written that I felt like weren't, didn't really fit thematically. Um, And so with songs like the dangerous ones or from a white hotel, those are songs that I wrote like during the Hawks and Dove sessions. Mm. I listened to those again and was like, okay, I can still do this. You know, like I I can, I'm still really good at this. Um, And that's not, you know, not to be arrogant, but like, I was like, okay, these are these, you know, these are on par with, with the best songs that I've written in my life and they're on par with the best songs that people are writing, you know, in this little community where I work. Um, And so then I started to think, well, like, okay, let's see if I can do this to just write a record, to write a record, you know, to not write a record, to be my out from prison record, to not write a record, Mm -hmm. to be my leaving Bellingham record, to just like, let's just see if I can write a record and wrap up some of these stories that I had, like some of these loose ends that I had kind of hanging out there for the last 10 years. Um, and then I started to think the, the initial thing was, I'm never going to put out music as Casey Anderson. Again, I'm going to do Hawks and Doves. Like I have tarnished my own name with the prison Mm. thing and, and all that, and, you know, burnt a lot of bridges, but then the way that that Hawks and Doves record was received and the way that, you know, like you were so supportive and Mm -hmm. Andrew Leahy and folks at Rolling Stone and no depression folks and all of these bridges that I thought had been burned had not in fact been burned or had at least been repaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought like, well, okay, you know, my main motivation for doing something under a, someone else's name or a band name was like, I don't want to shove Casey Anderson down people's throats if there might be some residual hard feelings or if there might be some residual resentment about like, well, why does this guy get to make records again? Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't really exist. Or if it did exist, it was really, really outweighed by the people who were positive in their reaction, not just to the record, but to like, to me playing shows again, to me writing songs again, to me making records again, to me, to the changes that I'd made in my life. Um, And so then I just thought, well, let's, if I'm going to write a record, I'll write a Casey Anderson record. 
You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to write with a band in mind. I'm not going to write with this idea of what a band sounds like in mind. I'm going to write these songs the way that I used to, which is I can go out and tour these solo for years, or I can bring a band with me and they're going to sound great either way. Mm. So I uh, was at that time, I know things are a lot different for you now. And again, that's part of, you know, I'm really excited to have this conversation now with ha- having had so much change in your life since then. Was that this batch of songs, was that a you sitting down to do the work every day kind of situation? Or were those just kind of coming in spurts? Like what, what did that look like at the time? Obviously, that's not, you know, you're not you're probably well, I say, obviously, yeah, you're probably not sitting, <laughs> probably not sitting down to do the work every day now, right? Because you have other, right, I have other stuff, other stuff to do. But uh, at the time, was that what it looked like? Yes. Um, and what it looks like for me to write, write a record or what it did the Hawks and Doves record didn't come together as much this way because I had some of the stuff. But when I say, okay, I'm going to write a record, typically that comes from having one or two songs. Mm. Um, and usually those are songs that are connected in, in some ways thematically. And I look at those two songs as the first track on the record and the last track on the record. So in this case, I had, you know, the, the first song on the on the, the Places We Live record is called Believers, and the last song is the title track to The Places We Lived. Um, and it was very clear to me, like, this song opens the record. This song is the period at the end of the sentence. How do I get from where the characters are in Believers to where the characters are and to the places we live? And then uh, because I am a procrastinator and because I am a really, really uh, meticulous editor of songs and can get stuck in, in kind of a loop doing that. Um, and it comes to, you know, with, with recording too, like I can, I can get pretty deep into an arrangement or like a tweaking hole. But because of that, I have to, when I have a third song, then I book studio time so that I know I have to have the record finished by X date. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had believers to the places we lived and then I thought, how do I get from one to the other? Um, and then I had that idea to write the song after Hanif's poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, how do I bring this in to this story, to the, to the places we live narrative? And then I, I did it. I wrote that song, Leave an Echo. And I thought, okay, cool. That's three songs. I understand how they fit together thematically. It's time to book studio time or who knows how long this is going to go on. Or, you know, I'm going to start to pick these songs apart until I don't like them anymore. And so then you know, we were kind of off and running. And, and then I just set aside, you know, like I, these next three weeks, I'm going to write songs. And then mm-hmm. the, the three weeks after that, I'm going to edit. And then I'm going to see what I have after that. And if I need to write another one, I'll write another one. If I feel like a couple lines need to change, then I'll, I'll change a couple lines and then let's get into the studio. Man, there's so much I want to ask you about. Like you, you mentioned bridges, you know, and how, and how you were concerned. And we talked about this last time too, like you thought that maybe bridges had been burned or that they would not be able to be rebuilt and that kind of thing. How, how has that evolved over the last couple of years since we last sat down to talk um, in terms of your relationships with folks that maybe you, you know, that you were worried about not, um, being able to build that bridge back have those bridges been built over that over that amount of time um what does that look like for you in terms of your relationships um it's been really positive and i i think a big part of that is that i have been very public in my own 
rehabilitation, mm-hmm. in my making amends, um, in I have been really transparent in the way that I have lived my life since I was released from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, and again, like I don't, I, I, I want to try and stay grounded in humility about it, but I think that people can mm-hmm. see that, that I'm in a very different place than I was, you know, when I was using substances and when I hadn't treated my bipolar disorder and, and when I was harming people in the way that I was. Um, and so I, you know, I think because of that, a lot of those relationships have been not just repaired, but are stronger than they were because they're friendships that are now based in honesty. And I'm not like hiding half of my life from my friends or like dodging phone calls or disappearing for weeks at a time. I'm present mm. and I'm an active participant in those friendships and those relationships. Um, and I know that there are still people who were harmed by me directly or indirectly or people who saw what, what, what went down and were disgusted by the situation and, you know, like thought, how can this person, you know, like this person benefited financially from a bunch of lies. He should never be allowed to make music again. And that's okay too. Like I, I have made direct amends to the extent that I feel is necessary. Um, mm-hmm. I have continued to make living amends throughout my life and will continue to do so. And like, I, I'm satisfied with the work that I've done. And I also understand that if someone else isn't satisfied with the work that I've done, then that's, I mean, that that's their right, you know? And, yeah. and I can't live my life to try and like, make sure that every person on earth is okay with Casey Anderson now. I, I just have to do the best that I can to make amends in the way that I, that, that is appropriate and that is safe for everybody. Um, and I feel like I'm doing that. And I, I think that that has allowed me to really rebuild a lot of those bridges and build some new ones. Um, and this releasing Let the Bloody Moon Rise, like officially in the way that we sequenced it, in the way that we worked on it together with Kurt Block's mixes and Ed Brooks's mastering is part of that. Like I really had said, I think in interviews before, maybe even with you, like, or at least off record with you, like I really regretted that some version of that record made its way to streaming services when I was locked up, yeah. you know, and, and like the guys in that band were so close with me and we were all so proud of that work. And a lot of that got lost and destroyed when I got locked up mm-hmm. and releasing this record the right way in the, the way that it's supposed to be heard and with everybody's permission and with my, you know, like with my own permission, I still do not know, you know, that record that's on streaming services that is like 17 unmastered tracks that weren't finished being mixed. Um, None of us are really aware of how it got there. And we have all kind of just let that go and, and be what it is. Um, But this is a way of like trying to do right by that band and do right by the work that we did together and do right by the thing that we made. And, you know, bring some closure to that process as well. That's got to feel good. That's got to feel good to have that closure. It does. And, you know, I've been in contact with, um, again, Andrew McKay, who I said was like, who wrote a couple of the songs with me on Let the Bloody Moon Rise and and played guitar on it. Um, and for and folks really... listening, Andrew's uh, from Presidents of the United States of America. Yep. yep. He's from he's from Presidents and he was in this great band called Shuggy and he was in a band called Uncle Joe's Big Old Driver. Um, but I've been in contact with him since, I mean, the whole, the whole time, you know, like mm-hmm. he was one of the first people I made amends to when I got sober and, and he, our friendship is very close and, um, you know, he, and I have been in contact and I said, is, is it cool if I release this record? Can you check mm-hmm. with the other guys? And like, I'm, I'm releasing it on my own label. Can you be in charge of, I'm just going to send, you know, whatever royalties there are from streaming, which will be pennies, I'm sure, you know what I mean? But <laughs> right, like, right. 
I just said like whatever there are, I'm going to put you in charge of distributing the royalties because I want to be transparent about money uh, because I know that, you know, like mm. 10 years ago, we were not in that band and there was a lot going on in my life that people didn't know about. And I just said, you know, is it cool? Do you think it's cool with everybody if I put this record out? And if I do, can you be in charge of money? And he was like, yeah, man, I, I we all still love the record, even if people carry hard feelings, which I don't think they do, but like, we all love the record. We all will be thrilled to see it come out. Um, and if there is money, great, send it to me. Yeah, we, man, makes me think about this idea of like truth in songwriting and and to think about the, 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 the headspace that you were in at the time and what was going on in your life at the time. There's so much truth in all of those songs and yet you were struggling with so much in terms of your relationship with the truth. How does that work? Like how, how did it, how was it that you were, cause, and, and, and this kind of maybe builds in, um, we've talked, you mentioned Hanif a couple of times and I want to get into your relationship with him a little bit too. Cause like, I just love his writing. Um, and he wrote this wonderful essay about let the bloody moon rise and, uh, Wednesday night round nine. And he, he said, Anderson claims to have no recollection of Wednesday night round nine, which doesn't dull how sharp the, ba the band sounds, especially tumbling through who do you love with an enthusiasm rarely seen when that song is confronted. Um, and I, I'm just really interested in like the idea that like those songs, all of your songs, right? There's so much to that, to the truth in those songs. And yet you were struggling with your own relationship with the truth. How does that happen? <laughs> How does that work? Uh, um, first of all, I want to say that's such a, like, what a nice way to put that. And I wish that I had ever been able to phrase it that way, that I was struggling in my relationship. With the truth. Um, I don't think anybody who knew me at that time would have put it that kindly. Um, I, you know, when I went back and listened to that record, it's like, I don't know who I thought I was writing those songs for or about at the time, mm. but it's so clear that that is my own shit that's coming through in those songs. Mm. You know, you listen to those songs that they're about people who are lying or people who can't mm. get out from underneath whatever it is that's dragging them down. Um, and I thought like, or maybe I said like, oh, I'm trying to explore, you know, like the darker edges of whatever. And it was just like, no. You know, like I'm just mm. bleeding this shit out onto the page and then I'm tr trying to pretend that it's about anything other than what's going on with me. Mm. Um, and mm. you, then, you know, that essay that Hanif wrote is such a, he just is so generous, you know, and he's such a brilliant writer, but he is such a generous listener mm. to music and, um, and he's right you know the things that he wrote and, and and one of the things that he writes and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me but you know he writes about how even in those like darkest times people are still capable of magic and it mm -hmm. and it's really really beautiful to see someone go back and embrace that magic and and that's another thing that the releasing this record is about it's celebrating like yeah man I was a mess when we were making this record and I was a mess when we were on that tour with County Crows but mm. Like these songs are really good you know mm -hmm. this band is really was really really good and there's no reason that we can't now look back and appreciate that and mm. and say like man that record is good you know yeah. like that is that is really a great record um yeah so that that it took me a long time or I think I kind of came to it in prison I wasn't like uh. listening to my own records in prison but I started to think about what I had written and was like and I was leaving myself all these clues when I was writing Let the Bloody Moon Rise that like, 
you know, there's a storm coming. And I, and the whole time I just, you know, I was like, oh, well, who knows what these songs are about? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, I've never written wow. a song in my life and not known what it was about. I knew what the shit was about. Yeah. <laughs> he said what the part you referenced in the essay and in his essay says the parts of us that have not been our best were also capable of some magic and that magic deserves a life if we can swing it <laughs> yeah so good what, what, what? i know he's it's unfair man like, <laughs> he's so good <laughs> i i tell this this story or i've told the story i think on twitter and i maybe told it on one other thing but he uh the last time he was in portland to do a reading we hung out and went sneaker shopping during the day and uh, we were having sitting down somewhere. It was beautiful out. We were sitting down in, in Pioneer Square in Portland and um, I, I am in a master's, I'm just finishing a, a program to get my master's degree. And he was like, what are you working on for your program? And I go, oh, I wrote this essay about Mary Clayton and Mary Clayton is, uh, is most most known for singing the, the female part on Gimme Shelter, the Stone song, but I mean, she's just an incredible solo artist in her own right. Um, and I said, I'm writing this essay about Mary Clayton that I'm really proud of, and maybe I'll send it to you. And Hanif goes, oh, I have a Mary Clayton thing too. Uh, maybe I'll read it tonight. And, and I was like, cool, great, Hanif. Um, and then <laughs> I, you know, I go to the reading, and at the reading, he's like, oh, I was talking to my homie Casey, and he reminded me that I have this Mary Clayton essay. And then he read it, and of course, it's like, I mean, Hanif is just head and shoulders above almost anybody else when it comes yeah. to writing about music and, yeah. and, you know, expressing the things that so many of us can express yeah. even when we make music. And so he reads it and I just felt like that scene in don't look back where Donovan plays, you know, <laughs> he, Donovan plays his little song and then Dylan grabs the guitar and plays it's all over now, baby blue. And you can see Donovan's face is just like, at, he's just is like, Oh shit. <laughs> and that's how I felt listening to Hanif read that thing. And so I went home and I was like, well, I can't use that. As, you know, like that essay, <laughs> that, that's gone. I can't have that anymore. Um, and Hanif's Mary Clayton thing is in his new book, a little devil in America. And it's, it's my favorite part of the book. And um, yeah, he just is, it's just as unfair every time he writes something. I just am like, man, why am why am I trying to do this? Yeah. Well, I, that's an interesting question too. Like the, and I wanted to ask you about your, your master's program. Cause I think when it comes to writing, when it comes to writing about music, especially I've mentioned this on the show a few times, but when I sit down to write about music, I, I, I love it and I do it and I go for it. Right. And I've been doing it for a while and I've got, I've gotten better, but like, how do you, how do you distill this thing that makes people feel things that they can't explain into words like writing about music is one of the hardest things to write about right i mean how do you take this transcendent experience and reduce it to an essay and hanif does it masterfully like it's just wild so to compare yourself to someone like that in it, it's i don't know how healthy that is you know i guess that's what yeah. i wanted to ask you about is like how how productive is that <laughs> it's not productive i mean it's like when i go out and shoot you know, a hundred jump shots at the park. I'm not like, oh man, I'm not, you know, Steph Curry is so much better than this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you have to realize that there are different levels of expertise. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I have to appreciate Honey for, for what he is, which is, you know, he does, he writes about music in a way that I never could, you know, I could get, I could get a second MFA and two PhDs and whatever else. And I still would not be, it, it's not, can change the way that I write in comparison to the way that Hanif does. And so I think you raise a good point. Um, and I, I think that you hit on something when you were talking about the way that you write about music, like you can recognize that you 
have gotten better at it, mm -hmm. right? You have come to a deeper understanding of what it is to write about music and who you're writing to and who you're writing for and what you want to write about. Um, and it's the same as, you know, like, I, if I listen to Esperanza Spalding, I'm like, well, I should not ever touch it. Like, I should not keep <laughs> instruments in my house. You know what I mean? Like, if I listen to Sadiq, I'm like, well, I should not enter a recording studio ever again to make a record. And, and if I listen to Isbel, I'm like, why am I writing? You know, like, what's the point? He's already done it and he's done it better than I'm going to do it. But that's not what it's about. It's not a competition. Um, it's not about me doing something as well as Esperanza does or because we don't do the same things. And even the, you know, even Jason and I don't do the same things. Right. Um, we're not writing for the same people. We're not writing to the same people. We're not writing about the same people. Um, and I, I think that that's what it is. If you can look at your work in the context of your own life and your own work and how it has changed and what it has meant to you and what it might mean to the people who are going to find it. And you can see a progression or a growth or, you know, you can appreciate things differently Then that's, that's it. It's worth it. Um, and that's you, why I, that's why I got, you know, I, I wanted to get a, an MFA because I wanted to get an MFA. I thought, yeah. you know, like I've wanted to do this. I wanted to do this since I graduated with my bachelor's and I never got around to it. And I, this is part of my growth as a person who makes things. And as a person who appreciates the work that others do. And I want to do this for myself. That's wonderful. I, I, this, there's a common thread um, running through this conversation, and it also ran through your conversation with Isabel, and that's the idea of like just being that work in progress, whether it's personally or creatively, continuing to do the work. I mean, as you were talking, and as you said that about you know, kind of uh, you know, recapping what I said about about looking back at the things I've written and and looking at it now like some i shudder sometimes to think about some of the shit i wrote you know even five six years ago <laughs> like i look at some of those old pieces that i wrote about records and i'm like oh god but at the time they were well received and i thought they were damn good yeah. and they're probably better than i'm giving them credit but I, I i love the fact that the more i do the work and i've been thinking about that with the podcast too man i just i just released my episode with todd snyder and it i, I just think it's the best thing i've done you know and and I'm so proud of the work I've done, but I just feel like, man, I knocked that one out of the park. And the reason mm -hmm. why is because every week I'm sitting down to do this work and it's, and it's been happening for years, but it's just that process. And when I listen back to my first episode with BJ, which I don't go back and listen to, but it, I, it's still good, but like, man, next time I talk to BJ, it's going to be so much better. And that's because I've been doing that work. Yeah. And uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the Snyder episode. And not only that, but it's like, and I wanted to, you know, I'm not just saying that because you brought it up. Like I, I wanted to open the conversation with that and tell you that like, I listen to every episode of, of your thing and I really love it. And I, and you're so insightful and so thoughtful. And also, you know, like honey, if you're a really generous listener to music and, and a really kind and, and insightful listener to music. Um, but the thing about that Snyder interview is that it's, I think to some degree with Todd, people who write about him or cover him have found a niche that they want to cover. Right. And it's like mm. Todd's the goofy stoner, Jimmy Buffett King, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and, and, but he's also a really smart, brilliant songwriter. And so they kind of take that and your thing with him is an entirely different mm. exploration of his work and his life. And that's what I've been waiting for. Mm. You know, mm. like I have read all there is to read about like the wacky Todd Snyder mm -hmm. stuff. You yeah. know, um, and I'm not 
interested in that anymore. And, and, you know, and, and the other thing that people don't realize when they write that way about Todd is that he does a better job of putting that across than they could when they cover it. Right. Like just Todd being Todd and that whole thing that he did last week where he like, there was that whole online saga where he quit and he pulled the record and then he agreed to put it back out and like, that's perfect. Nobody covering it is going to come up with something that ingenious. Um, yeah. But your conversation with him was just like, cool, this is the part of Todd that I am curious about as a writer and as a listener to his music. Awesome. Um, and the other thing that I would say is, as I do that too, like I go back and I listen to, sometimes people will ask for songs from The Reckoning and, and but people like yeah. that record because Don't Look Back is on it. Um, and I'll be like, man, I don't play that anymore. Like I don't dig that song anymore. Yeah. And, and I think, and I'm, what I heard from you when you were talking about that stuff is a, a mistake, or not a mistake, but a, an approach that I would like to change about myself is I listen to those songs now, or I, I read what I wrote now as me now, right? I read a song that I wrote as a 24-year-old, as 41-year-old Casey Anderson, who's mm. now been doing this for 20 years, and I shouldn't. I should appreciate that song as being written by a 24-year-old mm-hmm. who had just really figured out how to write songs. And if I do that, then I go, well, okay, cool. That's pretty good. I still might not want to play it now. It might not sound great in the context of songs that I've written as a 41-year-old who's been doing this for 20 years and has figured out a way that works. But as a you know, as a guy who was 24 years old playing in bands in Bellingham and just trying to figure out how to put songs together, cool. That's good. That's a good mm-hmm. document of that time. I love that. First of all, thank you for the kind words uh, about the show and about the Todd episode. And I think the the thing you just hit on, um, and I don't have it ex- the exact line, but in Hanif's, uh, and folks can go to CaseyAndersonMusic.com to see this um, essay that Hanif wrote. Um, he he kind of uh, he mentions that that idea of like um, it says so here's the paragraph what any reissue does is offer an opportunity not to correct history but to be generous with one's past self and their present desires in mind and I think it's so interesting thinking about what you just said I love what you just said about how like there's so much value in that 24 year old writing that song and you may look at it now and and think like and, and I hope this is encouraging for young creatives like do that work at 24 and don't worry about it. Like do your best. And then 20 years from now, no, it's not going to be as good as what you do 20 years from now. But, um, but there's still so much value in that. And there's still so much in that, um, in the process and, and just doing the work, right. Like, yeah. that, that comes back to just doing the work and knowing that like you, you have to start somewhere and you have to put it all down and you have to try it and you have to put it out there for folks to hear, that's another thing that I have a hard time with, with my kind of my young songwriting career is this idea of like sharing that work when you're first doing it for me, at least is very difficult. Like I can talk to you and hear, you know, and, and, and set, you know, just listen to what you have to say and then put that out. That's different. Right. It's like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm giving, I'm, I'm, you know, opening it up for you to talk. I mean, that's kind of how I approached the Todd episode. I was like, I just need to turn this dude loose you know, mm-hmm. and then where, and see where it goes. Like I had my notes just in case, you know, I, but I figured chances are, we're not going to like have a lull in the conversation. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's probably going to be okay. Well, I was ready just in case, you know, just in case he James McMurtry's me, but, um, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that is, you know, it's different to do that than it is to put your own music out or to put something that you, you created out there. Um, Cause you do have to sort of, especially when you're starting out doing these things is you have to get out of your ego enough to be like, I know I'm not going to be great at this yet. 
you can't expect yep. to be great at whatever it is the first time you do it, right? Yeah, you can't, you can't. And I, I think about it and I hate to go back to the basketball metaphor, but it's beautiful out in Portland. And I, I do, you know, like I've been trying to get back onto the courts and shoot. Um, yeah. If you keep doing it, you're not going to get worse. Right. Right. Like right. <laughs> if you keep working on it and you keep making stuff, I, if I go out and shoot a hundred jumpers today and I shoot a hundred jumpers every day for a month and a half, I'm not going to be worse a month from and a half from now. Yeah. I'm not going to like, man, I can't, I'm like, the first day I hit, I hit 98 and now I can only make four or five. Like that's not how it works. That's not yeah, how anything yeah. works in life. So it's a matter of just like building that practice. And, and understanding for yourself what that looks like and finding a practice that's comfortable for you and that helps you make things in a way that is fulfilling to you, but that also strengthens the habits that you want to strengthen about the way that you work. Um, and if you yeah. do that, you, you won't get worse. You will get better, or at the very least, you will appreciate what it is that's, that you like about your work and what it is that you need to change, and you'll start to develop the tools to change the things that you want to change. Mm. That's really well said. Uh, one of my pandemic purchases was a basketball hoop for my driveway. And uh, it has given me so much joy. And I'm just like, why didn't I do this? Again, one of those pandemic yeah. things where you're like, why didn't I do this like five years ago? You know, whenever we bought this house, like I've had the space to do it. Um, but basketball is one of my great passions. And I, I'm I'm curious about, I don't think we talked sports very much last time, if at all. And I'm wondering what it is, what is you're a fanatical Blazers fan, you love the game. You're so passionate about it. What is it about basketball that resonates so much with you? Well, in Portland, um, it's really all we have in yeah. terms of professional sports. I mean, we have the Thorn and the Timbers now, and that's a more recent thing. Um, so we have the two soccer teams, but the, the Blazers were really the only game in town. You know, we don't have an NFL franchise. We had um, we had a Double A ball club for a while, but that's gone now. And so I think, at least in Portland, you know, it connects the community in a way that other things don't. And, you know, for me, I grew up, um, my dad really loved, you know, there were sports on TV almost all the time and, and basketball was his favorite. And so basketball became my favorite and you gravitate to the team that's closest to the place where you live. Or if you're, I guess if you're in the South, a lot of people gravitated to the Braves because they were, that's- They were on TV. On TV. Yeah, they're yeah. on TV. Um, so for me, it's that connect, like now, and now with my dad gone, it's a connection to my dad. Like I can watch basketball and think about the, all the times I've watched basketball with my dad. So every game takes on kind of a, a different meaning in that way, but- um, it just is the Blazers are so enmeshed in the community and so enmeshed in the collective personality of the city of Portland that it it just became, you know, I, and I think most people in Portland who are Blazers fans are consumed with them the way I am. Like, I don't think there are very mm. many casual Trailblazers fans in Portland. I think that you're either in it all the way or, you know, it doesn't matter to you and you're and you're kind of ignorant to what's going on with the Blazers at any point, which there have been many times over the years where I wished I was ignorant to what was going on with the Blazers. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think it's also because, um, I don't know, I mean, now, especially for me, like to have a player like Lillard, to have CJ McCollum, like these guys are so involved in the community. Mm -hmm. Lillard is, Lillard, you know, his roots are in Oakland, but he's really dug in here too. And he is, he's really, really involved with the community. And that's cool too. Like you can get behind those guys in a way that um, I think a, a lot of people don't have 
those kinds of players on the teams that they follow. I'm so jealous y'all have Dame. He's so he's so wonderful and he can rap. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, like aside from all of that, if he was just a rapper, I'd be really into him. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, what a great dude and what a competitor. You know, I, the thing you said about community, and and I think this is especially, um, I'm, I'm especially heightened, and I think most of us are. Uh, I'm, my awareness of the importance of community is especially heightened at the moment um, with the pandemic and, and just not being able to get out and foster community as much. And it makes me think about like with sports, um, you know, baseball is my greatest passion, I would say sports wise. Um, and I'm a, I, I, my family's from Kentucky, so I'm a, a Reds fan. I watch almost every Reds game. Um, this it shows how much I care about you that I'm not watching the Reds right now. So it's not this <laughs> I even turned it off. I was watching it before. I turned it off, but I watch almost every Reds game. Um, and uh, I had Jaguar season tickets, Jacksonville Jaguar season tickets for years when I lived in Jacksonville. Um, and I think, in fact, I'm wearing a Jag shirt right now from the. You are. Yeah, and I think the thing about the Jags is like I'm really not that big of a football fan. It's the community it's the connection to the team it's what i loved about going to the jaguars games was there was a there were local food trucks outside and um you could bring the the, the food inside and the the feel of like they really made an effort to make the team part of the community and uh, the, the team came along you know they, they refer to like generation jaguar those folks who are about our age that like because you know we kind of and, and it, I guess I was a teenager when they when they came along, but still, we kind of grew up with them, you know, in a way. And that connection is more important to me than than the football game. Like just going, being there, and being a part of it, and feeling that sense of community, um, you know, chanting Duval, like the things that mm -hmm. you, that are so specific to the team and specific to the community, is something that I think I I've, I've always been aware of, but I'm I'm especially aware of now that we can't go to games, you know, or yeah. I guess we can, but I'm not going. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, uh, I know I, I always, I, when I lived in Bellingham, I would drive to Seattle and watch Mariners mm -hmm. games by myself. Um, and it was a really therapeutic thing for me. And my relationship with baseball has changed and I don't think I've ever told this story, but when I lived in Bellingham, um, I worked at, uh, before I started to play music and, and then for some of the time when I was playing music, I worked at this uh, movie theater. I, I was ran, I managed and ran the projection at this movie theater. And I mm. bought, um, at that time, like Sirius and XM were two different companies. I, think. Mm -hmm. so I, bought, I think I bought a little XM radio and I would go up to the projection booth and just put on the Mariners game. Um, and then unfortunately I would like cut out a bunch of lines for myself to do throughout the night and ah. so I would just like I'd just get high and, and listen to baseball and once I you know once I was in recovery my relationship to baseball changed because now when I listen to games I just I'm like immediately taken back to like oh man up being up in a dark projection booth and like doing drugs by myself um so that it's it's been weird like I can feel myself hmm. kind of detaching from baseball the last several years and not being as into it but that's interesting yeah, and I and I hadn't until you started to talk about it. I was like, maybe that's why I don't dig baseball so much anymore. Um, yeah. But it's to me, baseball is just like I don't. I maybe beautiful is not the word, but like it's such a soothing thing mm -hmm. to me to be at a game, like the experience mm -hmm. of three and a half hours, and you're just mm -hmm. at the game. 
or to have it on in the background. Like it's the only sport where you can go about your day. Like I can, if I put on a game, you know, you could, you, there will still be a Reds game on probably when we're done doing, you know, like you'll have done this for 90 minutes and the the Reds game will be in the eighth (laughs) or ninth inning or something like that. Like that there's something really comforting about that to me. Yeah, I fell asleep in the fifth inning last night and I woke up in the ninth and it was perfect because it was like this thrilling finish and the Reds won an extra <laughs> inning. <laughs> um, but I think there's something there is something magical about baseball I, is, is kind of the way I think about it. Like Colonel Bruce Hampton said to me that you, every single baseball game, you, you're going to see something you've never seen before every single game. And I don't know that that's true in every sport. I mean, I was thinking about it. I was actually writing a little bit about this yes last night after that game because it was just such a thrilling game and it just felt so good to watch and um and I I've been reflecting recently on <laughs> how fortunate I am that like I guess I've become the adult I had dreamed of becoming. Like I have a projection screen and I get to watch the Reds with my dogs and I have a robot vacuum. It's like all these things that as a kid, I was like, I will be successful in the future if I have these things. <laughs> I've got a beautiful woman in my life. Like, yeah, I guess I got those things now, you yeah. know. Um, I thought I'd be the shortstop for the Reds. So that didn't that didn't pan out. But everything else is kind of like what what 11 year old me was dreaming of um but that that game there's this triple play this crazy triple play last night you know it's just like that you that ne- that particular series of events is never going to happen again you know it's like it's like a really magical jazz session or something yeah. or, you know is it, kind of what yeah. what baseball is and and uh, um it just excites me so much and it, it i think that, you know i was going to ask you this about basketball like cuz again basketball also beautiful but there's just a difference to the flow of the game, obviously, and you kind of alluded to it earlier. The the room for creativity in those games is so interesting to me because it manifests differently. In baseball, you have this very specific job you need to do, right? Whereas in basketball, I was thinking about this, how like someone like Giannis can play every position on the floor better than everybody else on the floor on most mm-hmm. nights, right? Or right. somebody like LeBron can play every position on the floor. Magic was like that. Like there's just some players that now, whereas in baseball, that's just not the case. I mean, you can't like, you have this specific thing to do, but there's almost like a an interesting creativity to the fact that when you're playing first base, there's this set of of mm-hmm. things you need to do, and it almost like having the structure of that also allows for some room for creativity, similar to songwriting or yeah. um, or an essay or something like. There's something to haiku, for example, that is at once restricting, but also opens you up so much because you don't have to worry about as many things. If yeah. that makes sense. It does. And I think about like, especially if we're comparing basketball to baseball, which I think is that we could do a whole separate 90 minutes yeah. on that. But basketball is like, to me, basketball is being in a band, right? Like uh, Dame can't, is often the best player on the floor. Most nights he's the best player on the floor. Yeah. But he is either limited by or complimented by what the other four Blazers on the court can do right right like he can you know he he cannot every time down the floor he can't score right he just can't right like he needs to depend on other people to carry the load baseball is that way too to an extent but if you break it down like it's the pitcher versus the hitter yeah and then you go from there but it's an individual matchup every time it starts there 
Um, and so, you know, individuals can control that sport and the outcome of the game a lot differently than they can in a baseball game. And that to me is like being, you know, like that's being a solo artist or whatever. Like at the mm. end of the day, you know, is Kershaw going to strike out Trout or is mm -hmm. Trout going to get it, you know, like, and then it, it kind of goes from there. And then you get into the team aspect where like you're moving the runner along or whatever, you know, like their position teams yeah. are shifting and positioning, but really it's about the pitcher and the hitter in mm. each situation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's that collection of individuals that, and this is one thing that I think drew me to the game early on is like every individual matters so much um, and, and you're working toward this team goal. But like you said, it's not like in basketball where it, really, it is the band and everybody's kind of got to be, you know, one band, one sound is kind of how it has to be in basketball, right? Whereas in baseball, I love the fact that you're working toward this team goal, but each individual can shine. And I'm also grateful that like people, you know, I, I was like a a purist, right? Like I, I didn't like that they went to interleague play. You know, I was that guy growing up. And now my, uh, I'm I'm open to it, man. Like whatever, yeah. like last night they, they put a guy on second now in extra innings. And I was like, no, that is not what <laughs> you do. <laughs> that is not how this goes. And then I watched it last night. I was like, oh, that was pretty dope. Actually, that made it really exciting. <laughs> and I'm trying to, you know, I, I like that about baseball, that baseball is adapting and that so many cool things are happening now. And it's just a really exciting game to watch. I mean, I don't know. I will yeah. never understand folks who, I understand if you're not into sports, I don't understand folks who, shit on sports if that makes any sense like you know you may not like hip-hop for example but to, to not appreciate that it's a beautiful thing is confusing to me and i think that's true for sports too is like i don't totally understand people that are like crit there's a lot of folks who are like critical of sports i'm just like that just seems like a lack of understanding yeah i mean there's like i think that there's structural systemic things to be critical of as there sure. is with everything you know i mean there's sure. there's <clears throat> but I, I don't know. I'm reminded too of like, th this is maybe, I mean, it's not a new thing, but it's especially exacerbated since, since the advent of Twitter. But now there are those, like when the Super Bowl is on, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have people who are tweeting about the game and then you have people who are just actively like, well, I'm not fucking watching the Super Bowl. I yeah. can't believe anybody's. And it's like, you don't have to brock, like just don't watch the game. Just don't watch it. Yeah. Not into it. You don't have to, you don't have to like, I don't, there are foods I don't like, you know what I mean? I'm not in the restaurant listening to people order and being like, oh man, asparagus, <laughs> kidding me. You know what I mean? Like yeah, we yeah. have just reached a point where everybody feels like their every opinion they have has to be publicly broadcast. And like, it's cool yeah. to just enjoy stuff or not enjoy stuff. And you don't have to let everybody in the world know how you feel about it. Yeah. That's a great point, man. That is a great point. Um, I want to talk about some sort of uh, light, more lighthearted stuff um, as we kind of finish up. Uh, how, just on a personal level, what's fatherhood like? How you feeling? Man, it is. It's fun. Um, cool. The, the adjusting to the sleep schedule at first was rough. Yeah. You know, and and it's. Um, I have said that it's like all your friends and your family try and prepare you for it. And they tell you like, it's going to be like this. And it's at once exactly the way everybody said it was going to be. And it's nothing like <laughs> what people said it was going to do. There's just no way to prepare for it. And my brother is, uh, my brother's expecting now. And I have given him that advice. Like I can get, I can tell you whatever you need to know about my experience, but it's not going to be your experience. Yeah. You know, every yeah, kid yeah. is different. Um, but it, it's so fun 
to watch Winona. Winona is our daughter's name. Uh, to watch Winona. She's five months old, so a little over five months old, and is developing a personality and cool. like laughing at stuff. And you can tell when she enjoys things, and you can tell when she's frustrated or when she's tired. And it's like, oh, cool. Like I'm starting to get a sense for what kind of kid this kid is going to be. Wow. Um, and that's really beautiful. And, it, and it's really fun for um, Kaylin, as my wife, for Kate and I to talk about things that we want to expose Winona to and mm. things that we want to you know, things that we're excited about watching her discover on her own, like, you know, you, you, some parents, I think, go overboard with this, but you have the opportunity to really um, expose your child to the things that you think are important. Mm-hmm. Um, so Winona will, Winona for sure listens to a lot of music already. Um, mm-hmm. She has, I know that this is, there will be some parents who are not pumped about this, but she has watched a couple basketball games with me and she's really into it. Um yeah. And so, you know, there's stuff that we for sure want to show her about the world, but there's also like watching another person be curious and especially a child, like being able to kind of engage in a child's curiosity through them is something that's so exciting to me. And the the idea that I'm going to get to watch this person discover themselves and discover the things that they love and appreciate is really, really exciting. That's great, man. I think it's, I love that <clears throat> video that you posted where she's like giggling, like it, yeah, it's just so much joy. It's just so beautiful, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that was the one. Like I try to not go overboard with the baby content, but um, <laughs> that was just so like. It's funny because that you like it. It's a small thing, but like that's not even how she's always going to laugh. You know what I mean? Right. Like she's just right. figuring out how to laugh. She doesn't wow. even really know how she laughs yet. And so it's so cool that, that I'll be able to be like, even probably in six months, I'll be able to be like, oh man, remember when she laughed? Like, ah, you know, like she, didn't even, she hadn't even figured out how to laugh yet. Uh, that's funny. That's so great. Yeah. And seeing people evolve, you know, I, um, I was talking about this recently with my therapist about how like how much we change throughout our lives. And I know that's an obvious thing to say, but I think at some point, you know, you become an adult and you kind of feel like, okay, I am an adult now. And so these are the things that matter to me and this is what I am like. But my partner, Chris, and I have been together for seven and a half years now and I'm 40. I was not the same guy seven and a half years ago and like continuing to be aware of that coming back to like process again. Right. And making sure that you're growing. Like it's so crazy to think about how different your daughter's going to be when she's 30, let's say, than she is when she's even 15 or 20 and yeah. all the, all that stuff is like, I don't know, getting your head around it. Um, and, and like being able to, like show exposure to the things that you think are important while also acknowledging that like she gonna be her <laughs> you know she's, <laughs> she's gonna go do whatever you know yeah. you're gonna engineer this kid to be yeah, a yeah. certain type of adult i i think that's so interesting as I, we don't have kids we, we but we have dogs and I, like i know that's not even close to the same thing but there is an element of like this I'm, I'm kind of naturally parental, you know, I'm a teacher mm-hmm. and like, I, I really like being around kids and I've been around kids for a whole adult life with the dogs. It's like, 
I, for at first I was trying to be so deliberate about what they're going to be like, you know, and then like conundrum just threw that shit out the window, man. He, <laughs> he just ain't, he's not, he's not going to do that. <laughs> you know, he's going to be, be obedient and be a good dog and everything, but like conundrum is going to conundrum and it doesn't matter yeah. how much planning I do and how much effort I put into it. Like I just got to accept that my boy is my boy yep. <laughs> and he's going to be a rascal. Yeah. We have that dog. We have a dog like that too. Like I, we, uh, we tried early on to put Ike in like doggy daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember we came, we picked him up one time and the, uh, the, the doggy daycare person was like, yeah, um, it's just, it's like, it gets to be frustrating because he doesn't let the other dogs nap. <laughs> we're like, Oh yeah. He doesn't like, he doesn't really like to nap. And she's like, well, it's important that they take a nap. And we were like, well, I don't know. I feel like if it was important to him, he'd do it. You know, like, <laughs> He knows when it's time to sleep. He'll lay down yeah. when he's tired. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you just like there's, you can you can steer them whether it's dogs or babies, and like you said, the two are not the same. Right. But right. but I mean, the idea that, that this this person or this thing that you're responsible for in some way, you can steer them in a direction, and you can you can keep them out of trouble, and you know you can teach mm-hmm. them how to keep themselves out of trouble. But you can't, you know, I can't make another can't make Winona another little Casey Anderson and thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. The, the concept of, I just think, I think parents are wonderful and I'm, I, I'm so happy for my friends that have kids. Like I always thought I wanted kids and um, I think I'm overcome by the um, I'm overwhelmed by the pressure of it, of bringing someone into the world. Uh, And and that's not to say we won't do it at some point, but I, I, I just think it's amazing that you, you know, for, and this is for every parent, like that you made this choice to bring this life into this world and you took on that responsibility. Like it just takes a lot to be able to say, Hey, I'm ready to, to bring this person into the world that doesn't have any choice about it. And that I'm willing to be there for them and I'm going to do, you know, their whole life. And I'm going to really put everything I can into this. I just think it's an amazing commitment and such a beautiful thing. Thank you, man. I think that too. And I think that, um, I think in either case, it can be a really selfish or a really selfless act, Mm. right? Like it can be a really selfish thing to be like, well, I want a child and I'm going to bring them into the world regardless of the circumstances and Mm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm going to add to population density and I'm going to thrust them into this place that seems to be on its last legs and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that can be really selfish. Or you can look at it as, I mean, we, we talked a lot about it, Kate and I, um, or you can look at it as like, Hey, we try and do a lot of good in our lives. Mm -hmm. And if we bring another person into the world and we teach them about the world, the way that it is, and we don't try and put rose colored glasses on them Mm -hmm. and try and expose them to the whole of the experience of living in this world as much as we can, Mm -hmm. um, and hope that maybe they'll try and do some good with their lives too. Well, then isn't that one more person that we need in the fight? Yep. you know and and yep. and I, I i think you can look at it both ways and and obviously we chose like hey this is this, you know we feel like we could use another person in our lives to maybe do some good 
Well, and I think you could make the argument also that like the choice not to have, you know, like in my case, for example, the choice not to have a kid, if that's where, how I land again, I don't know. Some days I wake up and I go, yeah, let's do this. And some days I, wake up and I, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, your partner's going to want to have a say in it. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, she's the, she's the same. She's, <laughs> she's the same. We, we talk about it a lot, you know, um, we talk about all that stuff a lot and which is good. That's healthy. But we talk about all that stuff a lot in terms of just like, um, making sure that we're that we are creating the life together that we want to see and not one that society pressures us into i think a lot of my especially in my 20s i spent a lot of time um conforming to what the people around me wanted me to do um i went to law school because everybody thought i should go to law school and then everybody said i wouldn't do it because i was dragging my feet and then i did it to prove them wrong and that's a bad reason to go to law school <laughs> don't go to law school for that reason <laughs> you know like um and then finally i've gotten to a place in my life where we both kind of we talked pretty openly about we had we had for a long time chosen not to get married and then now I think we're going to, you know, now we're like, oh, red. yeah, like we, it's not official. Right. But I think so. We're, we're next week. We're going to actually officially become domestic partners in the eyes of the city of Orlando, you know, so by the time this, thanks. By the time this comes out, I'll be a legal domestic partner, you know, and that's pretty cool. And I, I two years ago, though, I don't think I, I think two years ago, I've been like, nah, we don't need that, you know, and now yeah. we're just kind of like, actually, we first of all, we want to do that. You know, we want to be able to sort of even though it may be kind of, um, you know, I, I don't know what the right word is for it, but like it, it's, we don't need to prove anything to anybody, but it's kind of nice to have, you know, to, to, to profess that love in that way. Um, plus then she can get healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. healthcare. There's, there's practical reasons. <laughs> and check this call back out, Jason. Um, <laughs> isn't, I mean, that, isn't that just sort of a larger, version of what we talked about with like you can appreciate where you were two years ago yep. and still honor where you are now you know yep. that's that is putting your practice into practice that's putting your creative practice into practice in your life and saying like hey i i would doesn't mean i was wrong two years ago i was right for who i was two years ago and now my circumstances have changed and i need to be true to myself and true to who i am now and this is what is best for me now yep that's really well said, man. Uh, we, as you know, we always end on what you're getting down on. What kind of art has you inspired at the moment? Like music you've been oh, listening man. to, or something you've read. Okay, I can give you a bunch. Um, okay. I have read Hanif's new book, mm -hmm. Little Devil in America. I've read uh, the new Melissa Febos book, Girlhood. I. These two are not out yet, but they will be out shortly. Um, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Um, mm -hmm. Clint sent me a copy of his book. It's beautiful. Pilgrim Bell by Kava Akbar, the poet. Um, Kava sent me a copy of that. It's really beautiful. That comes out in August, I think. Okay. Uh, the Allison Russell record that is coming out in May. The songs that I have heard from that are beautiful. And I just like, she is another one of those of those artists that make me feel like I should just like sell all my stuff and buy another basketball to practice jump shots with. And I don't know her work. I'll have to check her. Oh, she was, she was in birds of Chicago. And now she's, oh. um, um, she has her, her first solo thing is coming out and the, the two singles that she's released are just so incredible. Um, and then finally the, uh, the new UMI record comes out May 21st as well, I think. And they are, that's just, it's like my most favorite band of all time. And I mm. owe 
that to the guys in the honkies. Um, and we cover a UMI song on Let the Bloody Moon Rise, the song Older Guys is a UMI song. And I just released my cover of the UMI song, Heavy Heart. So once cool. again, how I just put a bow on it for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. <dude. laughs> nice work. Well, Casey, as always, this is such a pleasure, man. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so stoked for folks to hear this, these records. I'm so stoked for, for, stoked for folks to hear Let the Bloody Moon Rise get its proper release uh, Wednesday night around nine. Awesome also awesome and then to the places we've lived i'm excited to hear that final product too i i contributed to the crowdfunding and so I, i'm looking forward to my yeah. vinyl copy and, and everything I, yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, i will tell you that your vinyl copy of that record will include hanif is writing the liner notes for that record um and he's going to write another little essay about it that will accompany the release announcement so that that record will come with a, a free hanif essay that's awesome that's yep. great man Casey, it's just a pleasure as always, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. And now I'm struck, now that we're doing this on Zoom and not on the phone, I'm struck by how similar our faces are. Dude, uh, I don't, do you remember me making that comment like a yeah, yeah. while ago? How like, yeah, my driver's license photo, I don't have it on me. It looks like you. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was just like, oh man, that you look like what I would look like if I trimmed my beard a little bit. Yeah, let me grab it because it okay, cool. is like, remarkable. I'm pissed off in it because they... Well, that's a long story, but I look angry, but like, I don't know if you can see that. Oh, whoa. Doesn't that yeah, it really like, does like it, it, it caught wild. you at it. Like if you trimmed your beard, you would. And I, I remember looking at that being like, damn, I, that looks a lot like Casey. Yeah. I was all pissed yeah. off because Florida part of like the, you know, for all my liberal tendencies, I do tend to like fall back on a lot of libertarian thoughts that I grew up with about big government. And like when the, when the, uh, Department of Homeland Security based on the Patriot Act and some other legislation um, started requiring licenses to have like, you have to show like four different forms of ID and stuff. And then they put a gold star, which I thought was just like in Florida, which was like, really, you, that's what you chose. Like you had to do a gold <laughs> star for real. Like I was just so pissed off getting this cause I was, cause they made me like prove who I was, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. Well, man, it's so good to see you. Good talking to you. Thank Likewise. you so much for having me on. Awesome. Uh, holler anytime. Thanks, man. I appreciate okay, it. Bet. All right. Take care. See you soon.
Casey Anderson, y'all. Thank you so much, Casey. Everyone, Casey has been so good to the marinade. CaseyAndersonMusic.com for all things Casey Anderson. MarinadePodcast.com for all things The Marinade. Give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. Tell a friend about the show. Subscribe and rate us on your podcast app. Those are all free ways to support The Marinade and what we do. If you really like what's going on, please consider joining our Patreon community where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon exclusive content like our show, Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life. That's at patreon.com slash marinade podcast. It is a super fun way to connect with the marinade more than anything. Just thank you for listening. Keep listening. Y'all I am just so grateful for your ears and your time. Um, I really appreciate every single one of you for spending time with the show. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on, the segment of the marinade where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. I mentioned Amethyst Kia's work last episode. Um, The new record is called Wary and Strange. It came out the day that I'm recording this on Friday. Uh, It's absolutely outstanding it's souls it's blues it's country it's honest and beautiful uh just so powerful it's a powerful powerful record so check that out wary and strange by amethyst kia um andrew bryant good friend of the show andrew bryant with whom we are going to be recording on monday after i record this um i i am just such a huge fan of his music uh water liars is the band that he was in previously that I'm so crazy about. And you've heard me rave about uh, Sentimental Noise, his record that came out um, a couple years ago. is just uh, just a go-to. I mean, con- continually going back to that well. But his new record comes out really soon on July 9th. It's called A Meaningful Connection. Y'all. I mean, I've had the pleasure of listening to this thing for about a month. Um, I don't... I don't I don't lightly say, Hey, just pre-order this. Trust me. But I'm, so I'm saying it right now, pre-order this record. Trust me. Okay. He, I mean, it's just, he's knocked it out of the park. It's my favorite thing that he's done. And that says a lot. Cause I'm a huge fan of Andrew Bryant's music. My partner, Chris and I watched the Bo Burnham uh, comedy special on Netflix. I know everybody's been talking about it and, uh, I, I thought I'd weigh in. It's staggering. It's great. <laughs> I mean, just if you haven't seen it, watch it. Uh, it's one of those things where I have talked about this phenomenon on the show before where sometimes I'll watch something or listen to something and just kind of like I'm, I'm consistently in awe of great creatives, but sometimes I just feel like overwhelmed to tears that someone's that good at what they do. And this is that kind of performance. Absolutely outstanding. Speaking of performances, I got to see good friends of the show, Matt Woods and Austin Lucas, live on stage in a rock club with their guitars, swapping songs at Will's fucking pub here in Orlando. Will's is the the, the marinade's home away from home. I, you know, it was just a beautiful night. I got to hang out with my good buddy Jordan Foley. I got to meet uh, Larry Fulford, the comedian and musician Larry Fulford in real life. Uh, we've known each other on social media for years and uh, and finally got to just talk to him. <laughs> just face to face, go figure, no masks on. It was wild, y'all. It's been, it was a great night. Uh, I had a blast watching Austin and Matt. They're, they're just two of the best. They, they both are incredible performers. And it was fun watching like, 
you know, I've, I've, uh, I've seen Austin several times and this was actually my first time other than when Matt and I did a, the same radio show. Uh, he did an in-studio performance, um, while, uh, Chris and I were on a, a local radio show, we were all in the studio together and I saw Matt play a song then a couple of songs, but I haven't seen him actually perform before on stage, uh, which is kind of strange uh, given how much I've listened to his music and how much he's kind of, you know, Orlando's kind of his home away from home. Um, the, the energy between those two. And it's so interesting because I feel like they're very different guys as I've gotten to sort of know them. Um, the, the energy between them, the chemistry, the appreciation, the love for each other's music, it just, it, it all came out in such a, a, a large way on that stage they were both of them so happy to be there you could tell and both of them really bringing it and, and they, their car broke down like it looked like they weren't going to make the show potentially they were barely even late really getting on stage and the whole night was just wonderful I mean just everybody everybody there was in a great mood everybody was happy to be there everybody was of course, right? I mean, maybe that sounds kind of obvious, but um, but it just feels so good to be back in a fucking rock club. Just back in a small room. Will's is not a big room. It's built for live music like that. It's built for that kind of show. People were in such a good place. Both of them played songs from throughout their catalog. Um, I got to hear Austin play every song I wanted to hear. I got to hear Matt play every song I wanted to hear. And they just kept going. They just played and played and played. And it was just, I mean, just a hell of a performance uh, from both those guys. And getting to see everybody and be back out. And, you know, it wore me out for like two days because <laughs> I'm not used to staying up that late or being at, uh, you know, interacting with people in that way. So uh, it wore me out. But I can't wait to get back on the horse, man. I can't wait to, to, to go back to shows and, Get get back in a regular routine of once or twice a month getting to go to Will's and see some some live music. So thank you to Will's and thank you to Matt. Thank you to Jordan. Thank you to Larry. Thank you to Austin, uh, Jessica Polly who put that thing together. Just thank you to everybody who's out there doing their thing. And I'm so excited to see all of my fra- favorites come through town hopefully soon. So far, tours are missing Florida, but I ain't about to bitch about it. I'm just happy that y'all have a chance to get out there and make music and make a living and do your work. Um, you know, I'll travel to you. I'll, I'll, I'll go to see you. Those are musician friends who are listening right now. I, I need to get out of here anyway. I love it here, but it's time to get on the road and go see some stuff. I love all of y'all. Thank you so much for listening until next time. Go out and create something. Cheers y'all. <laughs>